Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, the podcast in which I read through the works of Philip K. Dick, roughly in the order that they were published in. In this episode, we'll be continuing this little short series on the short stories Dick published in 1974. Um, And as I was talking about in the previous episode, when we looked at a little something for us Tempunauts, these two stories in some ways really put a close to Dick's short story writing career. Uh, He would write a few more. Uh, Some of that stuff wouldn't be published. Some of it would be very experimental and it kind of connects to the Valis trilogy and they're not quite, in my view, they don't have the quality of a lot of his earlier short stories. Um, But this particular story shows that he was still capable of writing really compelling and important and and interesting short stories even late late in his career. this is also a s- story that got uh, Philip K. Dick in a lot of, of trouble with feminists in particular because it does seem to be, and it's actually quite uh, overtly an anti-abortion short story. And I, I don't know how much we need to get into that. You know, the, de- the debate around the time that the story was written certainly was the legalization of some abortion across the nation with the Roe versus Wade decision. Prior to that, of course, abortion laws were much more ad hoc based on what each state had. Some states banned it. Other states, you know, had more relaxed rules. And basically the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade kind of created some, a general national policy uh, with that we, that states had to to work with. And it basically assured a certain degree of abortion rights for all, all women in America. And this was this was a big part of the rise of of the right. You know, it was like the ERA, Roe versus Wade, and I, those two things in particular were kind of the cornerstone of the the lead up to the anti-feminist backlash of, of the 1970s and 80s. So, you know, Dick throwing himself into that debate is, is perhaps a little unfortunate, depending on your point of view about Dick and your own political po- uh, point of view. Um, Dick's not really clearly on the left or the right. I, I think a lot of his critiques of the world that we live in tend towards a more leftist or, or anarchist critique, but he often would say he's not a Marxist. And he's, you know, in the exegesis, he talks about Marxism and, and communism in not flattering terms. And the way he presents it in some of his stories aren't, isn't very flattering either. But at the same time, he's, he's pretty opposed to, you know, a lot of, a lot of, I think what's of kind of late capitalism, what we would now call late capitalism. There's critiques throughout his work of, of those things. Anyways, I, you know, that's neither here nor there. But the important point for me in this story is not so much what it says about Dick's politics or Dick's views on abortion, which I, which I think are, are separable from his overall economic critiques and, and political arguments he makes throughout his works. Um, but he, what this is really a part of is a longer argument that Dick was making really from his earliest novels and short stories, which is, a, you know, about the relationship between the elders and the young and the, how there's a very 
uh, a, a conflict almost, right? A, a, an ongoing conflict between the generations, right? Sometimes it's manifest in kind of the oddity of young people, and, and we see in a lot of stories adults who can't make heads or tails of, a, of children. You see that even in the father thing and uh, Project Earth and other stories in which young people and older people seem to be living in different worlds and, and seeing the world differently. Sometimes it's much more openly political, like in, as we talked about, with uh, the crack in space, where you have a large population of young people who are just pushed out of the economy because people are able to extend their lives for so long using these life-extending technologies. And so then it's much more like the elders dominating a world and not creating a space for young people to move up. And we see that, in, you know, some really interesting politics about age in novels like Dr. Futurity as well. So it comes up a lot in his stories. And I, I think there's a general kind of anti-Malthusianism in, in Dick's work. And so I think instead of just focusing on the pre-persons in the context of Roe versus Wade, I think we can look at it more broadly in the discussion of the 60s and 70s of about rising populations and the kind of Malthusian paranoias of the time, I guess, that's best seen in the book, The Population Bomb, by what was his, his name, Ehrlich, I think was his name. But there's a lot of science fiction writers who were interested in population. You have Make Room, Make Room, that's the novel that became Soylent Green, uh, of course, a, a movie and a novel about population. We have Stand on Zanzibar, which was a warning about overpopulation. You had, of course, The Lathe of Heaven, which deals with population issues. And then you have like some Star Trek episodes like uh, The Conscious of a King. And I forget the other one, but there's a there's a there's a Star Trek episode in which Kirk is is like a planet is begging Kirk to bring a disease into the population, which will kill out, kill off much of the population. But it's because they're overpopulated. And then, you know, Kirk has to, he has this moral dilemma, right? About should he be a vector for, for essentially a, a kind of a genocidal act that the, that the, that the planet seems to need and is, is begging for. Um, so there's all this talk about population in the 70s, even in the 60s. And eventually these Malthusian crises came to naught because of the Green Revolution. But I think, by and large, Dick really doesn't have much patience for these these arguments about population, right? Wherever we have an overpopulated world, I think the best example of this may be a crack in space. It's overpopulated in because of choices made by people in power. It, it isn't popular. People, having too many people isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's always the social context of what overpopulation is. And I think he's he's useful in that way because he sees people... You know, he sees population as always a function of social realities, right? You can have a world like the penultimate truth or the game players of Titan where you have a very underpopulated surface, at least, and the penultimate truth, it was the surface that was underpopulated. Yet a social system might exist in there in which there's not really room for the, the tunnel dwellers to come out, if you remember our comments about that story. So I think there's a there's a there's a lot to say about Dick's attitude towards what we now call kind of Mel- neo-Malthusian uh, philosophies and ideas. And I think we can put the pre-persons kind of in that context as well. So without further ado, let's get in and, and, and do our normal uh, our normal plan for these stories. We'll, we'll look at the background of the story and the, and the, the, the plot. We'll, we'll look at the plot summary and then we'll, we'll get into some analysis of the, of the tale. 
So the pre-persons, originally writ, published in fantasy and science fiction in October of 1974, you can find it in the fifth volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. So let's just jump into the story. Now, Walter is playing King of the Mountain and kind of a relevant story um, about or a relevant game about power and about just you know, whoever's on top of the mountain dominates, right? And can push other people around. And I think that's kind of how Dick sees how adults treat young people. Basically, they're on top of the mountain, right? And they can push the, the youth away, abort them, or whatever. So I think there's a symbolism there with the game King of the Mountain. Anyways, he sees the white abortion truck come in to pick someone up. He hides into the blackberry bushes, fearing that the truck is coming for him. His mother comes to find him and promises him that he will not be aborted, that he's over 12 anyways, and therefore the in the new the new law clarifies that once you're 12, you have a soul, right? And that, that's where Dick is does make a pretty overt anti-abortion argument about the arbitrariness of where we identify someone's soul entering into, or someone having consciousness, or someone having like human rights there, there's kind of a you know to say it's at three months or to say it's at six months in in the in the womb or to say it's you know it's maybe after the first year right there are cultures that don't name kids until like the first or second year because of high they did this because of you know high death rates among young people you know there are cultures that were infanticide as practiced or or were historically so this idea that just because someone was born that they have a light, right to life is you know doesn't really exist universally across human cultures and across history so there's something kind of arbitrary to say oh if at three months the state can intervene to regulate abortion well, why not five or six right so in this story it's a little bit extreme i mean there is a slippery slope argument here that's that's a bit silly but you know he here it's at 12. once you're 12 you have a soul and you can't be aborted walter uh protests that he had always felt like he had a soul. And this leads his mother to clarify that this is a legal question. It's not really a moral or religious question. So his his own feelings about it don't enter into it. Walter still worries about his friend who was aborted two years earlier. His mother mentions that, quote-unquote, pre-persons at the county facility have 30 days to be adopted. Now, the pre-persons are, are people under 12 who are, you know, chosen to be aborted by their parents or whatever. But they, they can be sort of sent to the basically the kennel to be adopted right before they're euthanized walter knows better and he realizes that his friend was actually put to sleep the test congress had decided now actually yeah so the the, the decision of who gets aborted or not is based on this test that young people have to take right the so it's the ability to master algebra this was the test for having a soul until you could master algebra you don't yet have a soul Walter tells his mother that he would like to firebomb those county facilities where these tests take place and where these kids are sent to and where these abortions, if you want to call them that, take place. That's what they're called in the, in the story. Now, other children told Walter that the abortion truck had come for a, a kid named Earl Fleischhacker. His parents called the truck but were too coward to stay when the truck arrived, so they kind of hid when the child was taken away. A stunning display of cowardice. Walter restates his hope to firebomb the clinic at this point. The others point out the flaw in his plan. Walter will be reprogrammed or put in a mental institution if he's identified as opposing this. So there's another level of control here, not just the abortions themselves, but people who don't go along with it and, and, and accept it will be 
put into mental institutions or, or subject to psychiatric training to be reprogrammed, essentially. And that's something Dick uh, looked at a lot in his works. Worse, kids could be, you know, some of the kids say, well, you know, kids could be killed in the fire bombing, right? Or if you attack the clinic or the truck. Walter, at this point, compares the trucks to the trucks that takes dogs to the pound. And, and Dick already made this allusion with the 30 days before you're adopted uh, statement. Walter wonders why it is so easy for adults to, to snuff out, and he uses this word, snuff out, things that are weaker than them. And th this is, of course, harkens back to the King on the Mountain game. The horror of the system falls on the most vulnerable. He dreams of an organization of snuffers who will kill the doctors performing abortions. So he has more violent imagery. And it, it's, a, it's an aspect of the story that I think is interesting that our, our main character here, Walter, is full of these kind of homicidal thoughts. And it's, is that just because the culture of death that is in this world, a culture that kills children, is going to create, the survivors of that are going to be filled with rage and anger and, you know, kind of, the, you got the cycle of violence hinted at here. Now, Ferris, the driver of the abortion truck, stops a boy named Tim on the street asking for his D-card. Now, the D-card proved that his parents filed a formal desire to keep him, right? So if parents don't do this, basically the abortion trucks will come and pick them up at some point before they're 12. He's unable to procure, produce his card, and the boy's put in the truck. So the burden of proof is on the young person to, to have his papers to prove he's wanted. The boy's father comes and explains to Ferris that they could not afford the $90, and they raised it later to $500 to file the desirability card. He has 90 days to file the form and pay the fee, or the boy will be put to sleep as a quote-unquote stray. In the truck, Tim meets Earl, who tells Tim that his parents took away his D-card. So it's something that can be taken away from one. Well, it could be filed, but parents can at any point say, well, we don't want you anymore. Tim's father... Ed continues to argue with Ferris about the morality of the law that allows the state to kill children who are deemed unwanted. He demands to go to the county facility with his son. He claims to not know algebra. So he's basically claiming at this point he doesn't have a soul. Walter is still worried about being forced into the abortion truck, especially after the horrifying pickup of the day. Ian, Walter's father, drinking heavily, blames the system on a group of quote-unquote castrating females, end quote, who began abortions as a type of war against men. And here we can see why some feminists were upset with this story because this seems to be a, a condemnation of the 60s feminist movement, calling them castrating females. This might even be a term that was sometimes used by anti-feminists at the time. He suggests leaving for British Columbia with Walter, starting a new life farming. Ian tells his wife Cynthia of these plans. They will mail her check to keep her afloat in the meantime. His bitterness towards Cynthia develops, and he mentions to Walter that, quote-unquote, boobs are quickly becoming obsolete. Um, you know, because there's no children, right? And so there's no need for these reproductive organs. Many can still, maybe they can streamline the pre-person abortion process by sending boobs to the county facility, and the children will will die of malnutrition. This, this is the bad joke he makes, and it's 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 a targeting the woman's body, and it's 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 kind of a troubling joke. But it it shows how this abortion policy is leading to a conflict between the genders, at least in this family, between Cynthia and Ian. And again, you, you can't help but think that Dick is projecting his own feelings, and it's it is kind of bothersome that Dick seems to think that. 
you know, men are going to side with the children and these evil feminists, the women are all going to side with the, the cult of death. Eventually, Ian accuses Cynthia of being part of the system that has not just a hatred for the helpless, but a hatred for all things that, that grow. Now, Tim, Ed, Earl, and the, the other boy are traveling in this back of the abortion truck now. Ed, who is Tim's father, says that he plans to expose the corruption of the system by forcing them to abort him because he's going to prove he doesn't know algebra. If this is the case, they will need to snuff everyone out, right? Or everyone who doesn't know algebra, I guess. He thinks that the real problem with the law is that it imposes an arbitrary line between those who can be legally killed off and those who cannot. The driver orders them to stop talking because they are distracting him. Now at the county facility, Ferris is questioned about bringing in a 30-year-old man. His death would be the equivalent of murder, he's told. Ed insists that he should be killed because he does not have a soul. He wants to be locked up with the other pre-persons. Trying to contact someone who knows them, they call Ian Best. Best answers, drunk. And when they hear that they're holding Ed, who is a Stanford graduate with a major in mathematics, certainly someone who understands and knows algebra, he threatens the county facility with media attention. Ian frees Ed and the three children from the pound. On the way home, they talk about how nice it is to be free and their plans to escape to Vancouver Island, Canada, which has a different system. Unfortunately, the adults know that such plans are not possible because they're all trapped within this system. Escape is not really possible. So that's the story of the pre-persons. There's a lot going on here. There's the language of the pound. There's, of course, the anti-abortion argument. There's this question of, of kind of the arbitrary state designations of, of who's a person or not. Um, there's the conflict between men and women going on. So there's, there's a whole lot packed into this, this little story. Now, Philip K. Dick's anti-Malthusian writing began very early. Even his relatively minor novel, Dr. Futurity, cast doubt on the morality of a society obsessed with the preservation of its resources at the expense of its humanism. And there you had a, a kind of a balanced population. Everyone was sterile, but, you know, the gametes of the quote-unquote best people were, were preserved and turned into children when, when someone died. Every time someone died, there was a new child was, was conceived. Now, in Dr. Futurity, you had a society that imagined life beyond 30 is odious. You had a totalitarian and cynical culture. This totalitarian and cynical culture of the pre-persons imagines almost the opposite. The idea that, that the people who would be the target of the systematic pruning would not be the people over 30, but it would be the people under 12. The legal foundation for this system is the arbitrary line of algebraic knowledge, usually acquired around age 12. I, I don't actually know when kids usually start taking algebra, but that sounds about right. Junior high, right? After, after grade school. At 12, people are deemed to have a soul and are allowed to live. But prior to this, children without the proper papers can be sent to a county facility until they are claimed by their biological parents after paying a, a steep fee or adopted. Most, it seems, are aborted after a month. Now, this story is awash with euphemism about the murder of these children, including destroyed or put to sleep, the same kind of language we meant used for talking about animals at, at the pound or at the Humane Society. Clearly, Dick was horrified by the then recent pass passage of the legalization of abortion, or at least, you know, some abortions with the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. He confessed to having been criticized heavily for the story's barely hidden anti-abortion argument. We can't deny that. He really does come out as an anti-abortion uh, uh he just comes out as anti-abortion in this this tale. I, I don't want to say pro-life because that's a that's like a movement culture that I'm not sure Dick was a part of, but uh, certainly he's 
upset by that. And I don't, I don't know if we have to say much more about that. And, you know, these are anti-abortion arguments that you'll hear in a philosophy class, you know. But anyways, I want to focus on how this story goes beyond the issue of abortion because it really challenges several aspects of the Malthusian perspective, perspective in general, the idea that there's too many people here. Or the idea, I think the true horrible aspect of Malthusian thought is it sees people simply as consumers. It doesn't see people as contributing anything to society, right? E- even people who maybe don't work are certainly contributing to society socially, you know, through their relations, you know, emotionally or whatever. And that's a real contribution that that can't be measured merely as, you know, here's this much resources, this many people, right? And most people on the planet, produce more than they consume. That's that's actually how capitalism works, right? A worker produces X and he gets paid X minus profit. Anyways, uh, that's that's the heart of the problem with the Malthusian logic. Now, Dick doesn't quite get into it in this point. He's, he's coming kind of coming at it from a different uh, point of view. The abortion policy in this story is clearly weighed against the working classes, uh, partially because we see it's very expensive to declare your your love and your desire to keep your child. It's the poor, really, who can't afford to register their children as desired. The 36W form costs $90, and not registering a child can cost $500 in fines. So it's, it's really prices out people who can't afford it. And it's a way of almost saying, like, if you're too poor to for this forum, you're too poor to to raise children properly. And we hear this all the time, don't we? Where, oh, if you're on welfare, you shouldn't, you know, have children, right? Or we should limit children. And the real anti-Malthusian, or the real, sorry, not anti, the real Malthusian thinkers out there, the, the you know, the, the people who talk about the welfare queens or, you know, target the working class and saying, well, they're having too many kids. Or target the poor people of the planet and say, they're the one, they're the reason we have crises, right? You know, this is another issue with this Malthusian logic that's so misguided. Even if you take the environmental argument, right? You know, the countries where you have the greatest population growth are actually countries where the average farmer, working class person in those countries actually remove more carbon through recycling and through their labor from the atmosphere than they create. It's the people in the global north. It's it's the royal family that you know. Look, think of how much. What's the carbon footprint of the royal family, right? If anyone shouldn't be having more kids, it's it's the the royal family, not uh, poor people in Nigeria. So it's kind of it's actually quite inverted here. So it's target. This policy in the story is targeting the working class. It's also targeting the young, obviously. By the 1960s and 70s, Dick seems to have realized that whatever celebration of youthfulness was reflected in Doctor Futurity. Sorry, my, my daughter just walked into the room. Um, anyways, uh, what what celebration of youthfulness was reflected in Dr. Futurity is really insignificant compared to the real power held by the old. And I, I think Dick is less, by this point in his career, less scared of children. And he, less have, you have fewer images of like creepy children. And you have more you know, like creepy old people. And, and that's certainly what you have in this story. As one character challenging the law by declaring himself soulless because he doesn't know algebra states, quote, there is in the land a hatred of the by the old for the young, a hatred and a fear. The ageism runs throughout this entire story, suggested most deeply in the use of dehumanizing language to describe the unwanted children. While there are adults who ruin the environment, 
it was the adults who for, who ruined the environment, forcing a Malthusian crisis. It's the children then who are singled off for punishment, right? And I think that's another kind of cruelty of the Malthusian logic. It's whatever bad decisions of the adults, of the older people, then get thrust on the young, right? And even more broadly, we could say like this horrible economy that the boomers created is thrust on the millennials, and then the millennials get blamed for you know, poor decisions or whatever it is, eating too much avocado toast or not saving enough or whatever. But it's it's not really their fault. They just inherited this world. They didn't create it. It's most brutal in the story, obviously, but that's it's the same kind of idea. Quote, you know the world is running out of everything, energy and apple juice and bread. We've got to keep the population down and the embolisms form the pill, from the pill make it impossible, end quote. Now, what this is getting to is a little subplot in the story, a little explanation about why they have to turn to this, and it's it's because the pill is is, is dangerous. It's it, you know it's not safe for women to use, so they turn to abortion as a way of basically of birth control. Now, to make this entire experience more palatable, it's modeled on another unjust system that's been internalized as necessary and normal, which very few of us question. Animal rights people, I suppose, do, but even many animal rights activist will will say there's a certain logic in the collection and killing of stray animals right you 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 see you hear these stats about like how oh, it's feral cats you know how many birds are killing and stuff and you say well how do we solve this problem obviously fixing your your pets is is important but these strays are out there right and they're causing real harm to our environments so what can we do but collect them and kill them but that's still kind of a brutal solution to, to the problem. Here we have actually young, unattached, legally and bureaucratically unattached children deemed as strays. At several points, the county facility is openly described as a pound. The trucks that carry the children to the county facilities remain remind others of animal control vehicles as well. One character says, quote, you know they take dogs too and cats. You can see a truck for that only about once a month, the pound truck it's called. Otherwise, it's the game. They put them in a big chamber and they suck the air out of their lungs and they die. They do that even to animals, little animals, end quote. So it's, it's consciously contrasted, you know, the treatment of young people here and the treatment of animals. In this story, Dick suggests that the Malthusian logic extends to this hatred of anything that grows, the ultimate in institutional ageism, right? Because the old... Whatever they do, they don't grow, right? They they just die. Um, and while individuals want children, there's a clear shortage of children reflected by the wealthy searching for children to adopt. But there's also a shortage of young people. The institutions committed to po zero population growth today, you know, and in the story, labor on in its in in, in their in their job more much more horrific in the story than in the real zero population growth movement, but I still think there's a lot to criticize about the zero population movement in our own day, partially because it targets poor people um, who are the least likely to make a significant contribution to a resource crisis or an environmental crisis. Now, Malthusian currents run strong in our world. It is very clear that the majority of advocates for zero population growth prefer a wide distribution of birth control over widespread abortions or forced abortions. Right, even in the one-child policy in China, right, the preferred approach to it was birth control, family planning, not, not abortion. 
Um, but to make this horrific description of the systematic murder of children realize, Dick makes birth control laughably ineffective and pregnancy is a playful disruption. At one point in the story, a couple decides to have an abortion, which first requires the removal of an already failing IUD. They look forward to taking home the embryo, quote, a bottle or sprayed with special luminous paint so it glows in the dark like a nightlight, end quote, so that they actually will will keep their aborted fetus as a as a token, as a, as a, as a, as a trinket. I can really understand why feminists are upset with this story. One is it kind of misrepresents what the abortion rights people were after. Uh, second, it really seems to unnecessarily make this a battle of the genders. It might be reasonable to have a principled opposition to abortion. The story of the pre-persons is very misogynistic at many points. The people picked up in the abortion truck are boys. Walter's father, Ian Best, and L. Gantrell all dream of escaping to British Columbia, even though they know it's not really possible. Why? Well, they'll need permission from their wives, which they know they will not get. What starts as the oppression of the state ends up being the oppression of empowered women. Or the oppression of the state is is almost is presented in the story, at least from the point of view of our male characters, as a logical extension of feminism. And I, I think there's, it's, it's hard not to see that when you read this tale. And then the, the final kind of punchline of the story is that the men are all oppressed by, by these powerful wives. In the story, Dick Perriott, per, um, parroted many horrible anti-feminist assumptions. One of the most important of these is that the goal of feminism is ultimately to oppress men. Ian, Walter's father, blames the quote-unquote castrating females for a war against anything that grows and begins their demand, f and it began with their demand for abortion rights. It grew from there to total power over life, death of all weak weaker people. In fact, we almost have the inverse of A Handmaid's Tale here, right? It's, it's, it's in both stories is about power of reproduction and the power of, you know, who controls reproduction. But in the one, it's a male-dominated religious society. Here, it's a female-dominated secular, you know, society run amok. So it grows to total power, and then power, of course, will oppress, and it oppresses weaker people, right? And the weakest people are, are children. And, and that's, a, that's a narrative of power that I think is familiar to Philip K. Dick readers. I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's not always so brutal in, the, in that, but, you know, if you imagine power is something that it will inevitably oppress weaker people, because you can't oppress more powerful people, because that's not how power works, it will, you know, that will include the helpless and the weak. The heroes of the story are men. Now that's common in Dick's writing, so he doesn't have that many female heroes. But given the context of the story, it's much more conspicuous that our heroes of this tale are men. The one who stand up against this regime are men. I don't think the negative opinions of the story, you know, derive only from his position on abortion. If it was just that. That's that's fine. I think there are other science fiction stories that that made similar arguments about, you know, about abortion. But it's really his presentation of feminism as an effort by women to dominate men is where the real problem is. The story could have made its point, And I think it could have, could make some really great points about Malthusian logic in general without this this misogyny. 
So that that does it. Those are my thoughts on the pre-persons. So I, I know there's a lot to talk about and a lot to think about. So if you've read the pre-persons and you have your own opinions about it, please please leave them below, or you can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com, and I will try to get back to you. Um, as always, thank you so much for sharing this experience of, of going through one by one the works of Philip K. Dick. I've really enjoyed it. And as we're kind of getting to the end of the series, we got a lot of work yet to do, but we're starting to get to the end. You know, it's, you know, I just want to thank you again for sharing this experience with me, the, the listeners that are out there. So in my next episode, I'll be looking at, at I think we got to go back to a novel now. We're done with 1974. Yeah, we'll have to look at, uh, Dick only published one, one thing in 1975, as far as I can tell, and that is Confessions of a Crap Artist, one of his mainstream novels. I think it's the only mainstream novel of his that got published during his lifetime. It does have a few science fiction-y elements, and I haven't yet decided if I'm going to do the other, the non-science fiction works, except for this one, um, Puttering Around a Small Land in Milton Lumpke Territory, you know, The Broken Bubble, and those. I don't really own them, and I've never read them before, so I might just not do them. But uh, I have yet to decide about that. I may I may come back to it at some future time and and reflect on those works in a, in a separate series. But anyways, I, I will look at Confessions of the Crap Artist next, and that will bring us into 1975. So uh, thanks so much for listening once again, and I will see you ne- next time with my thoughts on, on Confessions of a Crap Artist. To feel these changes happening in me.